man named John the Baptist who really struggled with doubt. Now, doubt's not something that a lot of people like to own up to with respect to their faith, even though we live with doubt, right? We, we live with doubt in every area of our lives. We have doubts about people. We have doubts about products. I mean, that's where we get the phrase caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware. Uh, we have doubts about investments that we've made. We have doubts that we sh- whether we should have gotten married or not. It's too late. Uh, we have doubts about whether we should have had kids or not. It's too late. We have doubts about verdicts and trials. In fact, uh, I heard a funny story. I don't usually like to tell jokes about this, but uh, I don't like to open teachings with jokes, but this was such a great story I thought I'd share with you. Uh, thank you for you know, letting me indulge myself here. The, uh, there's a trial, and it was a capital murder case, and there was just lots of evidence against uh, the person who was on trial. And it just looked like it was a pretty much a slam dunk uh, case against him. And so at the uh, closing arguments, his uh, a lawyer got up and said, Listen, uh, in one minute, the person who really committed this crime is going to come through those doors in the back. And everybody turned to look back. And they waited and waited. And the jury is looking. Everybody's looking. And then... And then he goes, okay, I lied. Uh, The truth is, what I wanted to show you is you all looked back there to see if someone's going to come through that door because he's speaking to the jury because you have a reasonable doubt that my client actually killed this man. And so uh, he says, so I rest my case. He sits down and the jury, oh, they're suddenly confused. And so they go into the jury room and like two minutes later, they come back out. You know, everyone's just leaving the room. They all come back in. The cameras are there. And they get up, and the jury foreman says, uh, we find the defendant guilty. <laughs> the, his, his attorney jumps up and says, what? How can you find him guilty? I saw the reasonable doubt in every one of you. You all turned and looked back at the door to see who was coming through. And they said, yeah, we did, but your client didn't. <laughs> so, didn't you like, wasn't that good? That, that's, a, that's a sharp jury, Right? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice if doubts were all so you know, easily settled? They're not. And most people don't like to talk about the doubts that they have about their faith. You know, this series we're doing is I believe in God, but. You know, I believe in God, but we have all kinds of experiences of this big gap between what we believe and what we experience and what we believe and how we live. So we're exploring that for a couple of months. And here in the book of Luke, there's a story We're going to take one little section. It's in Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, under the chair seat in front of you, there's paperback Bibles. I'm going to read this little section for you, and then we'll look at the points. Pretty simple. And I've got to tell you something about the background of this, the people who are in this, so we'll get into that. Let's let's read this passage, then we'll pray and ask God to help us. Uh, uh, Luke 7.18 begins with this, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases and sicknesses and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. 
Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. So let's pray. Lord, we have doubts. We, we have them regularly. We struggle with them. And uh, we just want to learn how to resolve them in, in a, an effective way. We ask for your wisdom and your help here. And we ask that you'd help us to get in touch with our hearts and the, the deepest things inside us today and to be able to honestly bring them before you and to have and to ask you to help us with them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, John, this story is about this man named John, John the Baptist, and he has this wrestling match with doubt. Now, John the Baptist is one of these characters in the New Testament in the life of Jesus. This man... It's hard to imagine he had any doubts because if there's anybody who just seemed to be more settled in what he believed and he, he had a special vocation in, in when the Messiah was going to come into the world, God had planned to send a person before the Messiah to proclaim and prepare the way so when the Messiah came, everyone would know that it was the Messiah from God that the Jewish people had waited for for so long. And so that was John the Baptist. And when everybody else was unsure about Jesus and that he was the Messiah, John wasn't. John took all the thousands of people who were following him and he funneled them to Jesus and said, I'm just the one that was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He has to increase and I have to decrease. Very unusual for a person who's gotten into the limelight to ever be willing to step back and let someone else... uh, take the, 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 you know, the, the prominence when they'd had it. But John knew that was what his job was. And so he wasn't hung up on holding on to that popularity. That, that's a rare person. And so when you see this story about John and this wrestling, you go, wow, what could have happened in his life? You know, what, is, what was it that made him struggle so much with doubt? Now, he's not struggling with the idea is, of, is there a God? But he's struggling with something that probably in his life is just about as significant, which was, I came into this world with a mission, and I thought I, I, I had it down, and now all of a sudden he had some doubts about whether Jesus was the Messiah. And he had just used all of the equity, his public equity, to promote Jesus, and now he's wondering, did I get this wrong? And this was all, now you wonder, why did he, why did he struggle with that? Well, it came from a very personal experience he had. He got thrown into prison because he had criticized King Herod for Herod stealing his brother's wife. And John just said, listen, uh, this is just wrong, Herod. You are, you know, wrong before God. Well, Herod decided that he didn't like to be criticized like that. And so he just had John locked up in a prison and he kept him there. And John used to go see Herod. Herod had his own little show with John. John would come and talk to him, and Herod liked to hear him talk. But Herod wasn't convinced by anything John said. And so John is languishing in prison under this uh, uh, unjust action by the government. And he's going, the Messiah is supposed to come and deal with it. This is one of the signs of the Messiah was he's going to come and overthrow all evil, right? He's going to deal with evil. That was what the Old Testament said. The Messiah would come, and he would straighten all these kinds of things out. And so John's sitting there in prison, and he's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing, and, and he pointed Jesus out, the whole thing I explained. 
And now he's wrestling deep within him. How do I reconcile, you know, my experience of I'm one of the people that God needs to rescue too, just like the sick and all the other people. That's cool that that's going on, but what about me? Because there's not just me. There's lots of people who are political prisoners and are treated in an unjust manner, uh, you know, by businesses and government and all, you know, all over, the individuals. How come God isn't helping all of them? And why is, uh, isn't Jesus doing something about it? So this is, this is the point of his wrestling match. And so doubt, you know, doubt is painful at times, isn't it? Have you ever had doubts you've experienced that just, just tear at your heart? And, it's, and the most painful ones can be our relationship with God because there's times where you feel like, I really got a hold of what it's like to have a relationship with God. And then things happen in your life and you cry out to God and nothing happens and you go, where is God? Was that all just a figment of my imagination? Was it really real? And if you're honest... That takes a toll on you. And John, he, he, had, he had his wits about him in a way that a lot of times we don't. He sent some of his trusted students, his followers, the ones that were left, to go talk to Jesus. And he voiced his doubts. And this is one of the first lessons you can get from this story. When you wrestle with doubts, most of us just push them down inside and just try to you know, work on them ourselves. We just go, I'm going to white knuckle it through this. And the truth is, that's never the way to resolve doubts, or it's never the way really to resolve most things. And if you could resolve it, you would have resolved it. If you could have reached some conclusion that caused the doubts to just dissolve away, you would have done it. And so, one of the things that the Bible tells us, it's, it's part of the psychology of salvation is, God wants to get things up and out. He wants to bring things out to the open. He wants us to expose the, and be vulnerable as a way of life. But our instinctive, reflexive way of approaching life is to be guarded and closed and shut down and defended. And so John the Baptist this is pretty, I can imagine, this is, a, this is a teacher that thousands of people have listened to who spoke with this certitude and authority. And now he's having to speak with uncertainty. And he's, he's, he's having to show a side of himself that no one had ever seen before. But it was a side of his identity as a human being. And so... He models something for us that, that we have to get a hold of. If you're wrestling with doubt, get it out. Don't deny it. Bring it to God and to other trusted people, and you start resolving it. Pushing it down, just, the, Jesus said at the end, it's kind of a, the, the last phrase of the text I read was, uh, blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. And that phrase covers a lot of ground. But one of the things it says is, when you wrestle with doubt, if you don't deal with it, it's going to, it's going to either push you closer to God, or excuse me, how you deal with doubt is going to push you closer to God or further away from him. And so John knew, if I internalize this and I just ignore it, I'm going to slowly start drifting from God. I'm going to stumble over what's going on, what I'm wrestling with. And really, I'm going to stumble over what's connected to Jesus. 
Because I'll show you in a second here. Jesus was the key to him resolving this. And he went, he sent his disciples to Christ. And you would think Christ is part of the problem. Why would he send his disciples to go talk to Jesus? Well, this is part of what the story shows us. So how did Jesus answer John? Now, this, sometimes this surprises people when you look at this. What you see right off the bat is Jesus didn't scold John for his doubt. He didn't scold him and say, John, you're a teacher in Israel. You're supposed to know better than this. How could you let yourself be filled with doubt? He didn't do that. He just listened to John's disciples and sent them back with with really kind words. He didn't scold him. And he didn't say, go and tell John, suck it up, buddy. Just believe, you know. Because he knew that our faith doesn't require absolute certainty. Most people think faith is just absolute certainty. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, John is just one in a long line of people in the Bible who wrestled with doubt, people of great faith who struggled with real doubts, real doubts about their relationship with God, real doubts about who God was. I'm I'm not going to give you the litany of names, but some of you know the Bible very well. You can go back into the stories, the biographies in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the struggles with faith that people had. Think about even Jesus on the cross. When Jesus, who's told everybody for three years, my mission is to come and reveal God to the world and save the world through a suffering death on the cross, that God sent me, and and I'm going to die on the cross, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead, and that's going to be the victory of God that's going to bring life into the world. And then when he's hanging on the cross, he goes, God, why have you forsaken me? If that isn't a cry of doubt, I don't know what is. Here's someone in terrible pain, and a lot of times pain and suffering is what evokes doubt. It, It provokes doubt. Because all knowledge, if it, it, this is basic epistemology, all knowledge requires some level of faith. Right? I mean, how many of you have ever been to Europe? Few people here. But you, I don't think there's probably anybody in this room that doesn't believe that Europe isn't there. But you believe it based on faith. And all faith requires knowledge. And because we're finite... We're limited in how much knowledge we can grasp and hold on to and, and be confident of. And so we wrestle with faith because faith and knowledge are, are, are connected. And certainty, absolute certainty, is not what God wants of you. I mean, remember when Jesus said to people who were struggling with their faith, he said, if you have this much faith, and he, just, and he made an analogy to a, a, the tiniest seed that he could think of in that, in that community, a mustard seed. He said, if you just have that much faith, a mountain, you can, you can pray and anything can happen. And so it can't be our absolute certainty. Because, I mean, how much, how much absolute certainty does a mustard seed look like it compares to? It's, it's, it's meant to show you it's not how much faith you have. It's what you have faith in. You have faith in God and his faithfulness and his power. And so... John hears this from Jesus, and he, he didn't say, John, he sc- didn't scold him, didn't say, you should just try harder. What he said to him was really cool. He said two things. 
He told his disciples, it says, at that very time he healed people. And he cast out demons and he raised the dead, did all these wonderful things to ease suffering. And then he told the disciples, John's disciples, go back and tell John these two things. One, tell them what you just saw. Two, tell them, John, don't stumble over me. Don't remember who I am, John. Now, this was shorthand, okay? I'll, I'll explain a little more. That last statement was short. It was, a, it, was a, it was a message that had paragraphs and paragraphs that it was like two people who knew each other real well sometimes can communicate with a glance or a word and just all kinds of information are immediately grasped, right? Well, John was raised as a Jew, and so he understood the Old Testament. He understood who Jesus was. And so when John said this, or Jesus said this, John immediately knew what he was speaking of. So he didn't have to give him a big, long explanation to, to, to tell John. So the first thing he said, I tell them about the suffering I eased. See, one of the questions we have when we wrestle with who God is, is when we see suffering in the world, we wonder if I pray or people try to address this suffering and, and we invoke God's name and we bring God's resources to bear, and it doesn't change it, then God, that must mean that God doesn't exist. Because the Christian God that we're taught is God is good, and he's all-powerful. Well, if, if we pray and God doesn't do something, then that must mean that God isn't good, because he doesn't care about something that we care about. Or, if he's good, he can't do anything about it, so he's not all-powerful. Well, in Jesus, right there in that moment, Jesus eased suffering. Now, John was suffering from injustice. But Jesus addressed this huge range of human suffering right there for John's disciples. And it showed that God is good and he's powerful. But what it left is this gap of John's suffering. And, he's, and that's where he called John, listen, don't stumble over what you're going through. There is a point, because we're human beings, we can't ever resolve this gap between the arguments about God and his existence and his goodness and his power and our experience, there's a gap there. We do experience good things, but we experience bad things too. And they're, they're so hit and miss. Why, why, is it, why does something good happen here and not here? That's, that's the reality. And some people just want to dismiss it and say, nope, I, uh, I can't believe in a God who would let any pain enter the world. Well, that, that philosophic, I don't think that flies, it's not, I don't have the time to go into that argument. I think there's lots of uh, good cases that are made about the issue of suffering. But in, in this case, John wasn't wrestling with whether God existed or not. He, didn't, he just didn't know if Jesus was the Messiah. If Jesus was who he said he was and who John thought he was. And so John gave him first, what, John, God, uh, what Jesus did with John's issue was, he spoke to his head and he spoke to his heart. Because doubt involves our head and our hearts. Do you understand that? When you're going through doubt, it's not just an intellectual thing. But it does include, there's an intellectual aspect to addressing our doubts. But our head and our heart is connected in a way that you can't address one without addressing the other. And so Jesus starts with John and addresses this knowledge aspect and says, here's some solid evidence, John, for who I am. Now, 
Luke doesn't quote it, but you can go in the book of Isaiah, for example, and every one of those evidences that Jesus cited were all signs of the Messiah and what he would do. He would raise the dead. He would heal the sick. The deaf would hear. The lame would walk. The blind would see. The poor would have the gospel preached to them, and on and on and on and on. And, and injustice would be addressed. And you could see in the life of Jesus, people who had been unjust people, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, a man with great power and influence. He met Jesus, and he just said, no more. I'm, I'm not going to get wrapped up in this bogus system. I'm giving half of my money away to the poor. I'm going to pay back everything uh, that I've ripped off four times. He made reparations. This was justice coming into the world through an encounter with Jesus. But it wasn't touching all the levels of power. Not yet. And so at this point, John is experiencing the injustice. And he's the one that's pouring his heart out and saying, God, where are you? If you're really in Jesus, as I thought, how come you're not helping me? There's no way to resolve that just intellectually. But what Jesus said to John was really crucial. This will make our point. We'll close. He said, next, he said, tell John to be careful not to stumble over me. And, and to stumble in the Old Testament, it was a, it was a Jewish idiom that, that meant, you know, when you stumble, you walk along and you, there's a, 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 a something on the ground that's uneven and your toe catches on it and you stumble. And it was a, a picture of people stumbling at what God said about the way things should be. That our will and how we want things to be and God's will clash and so we stumble. And Jesus was representing the will of God. And Jesus was saying to to John here, John, listen, you know that it's human to want your way and that many times you can make the mistake that your way is right when you know just by definition that God's way is always right, but that oftentimes our ways and God's ways don't line up. In fact, our ways and God's ways clash. Don't get caught in that trap, John, where you think because you're suffering and you understand what Scripture says that there could, there could be no reason why you would suffer that would be a reason that would allow God to let it go on. And John knew at some point they didn't keep you in those jails forever. Usually prophets, like all the prophets in the, almost all the prophets in the Old Testament, they were killed. John knew that that was probably coming down the line. And he's thinking, this is not right. Even though he knew the Old Testament, that that's what happened to prophets, he's thinking, if the Messiah is here, then the kingdom must have fully come and all the injustice is about to get wiped away. And if it's not, then Jesus must be, you know, uh, he's somebody else. He's obviously a good man, but he's not who I thought he was. And so Jesus is appealing to him, saying, John, hold on. Because in the Old Testament, it said that God, when he laid this new building, this new creation... This new society, he was going to lay a cornerstone. And, and in the way they built buildings, a cornerstone was this crucial element to the whole project. And it was very expensive, it was big. But what Jesus is compared to is that cornerstone. So when God's building a new humanity, he's building it on Jesus. And what the Old Testament prophets said, when God laid this new cornerstone... And it was going to be a cornerstone over which people stumbled. 
And John knew this. And so Jesus is using this stumble language to remind John, the way that God's going to do things, John, is going to look different than what you want. Because how many times have we prayed, oh God, why don't you do something? And it didn't happen immediately, and we became impatient. And we became doubtful towards God because our will wasn't happening. You know, we, we, we substitute in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come and may my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> that's how we pray, but that's not what Jesus taught us to pray. He said, pray your will be done on earth, earth as it is in heaven. We want our will to be done because it's part of our human perspective. And it's not always that our will is wrong, but we have to establish as a ground rule, as a way of life, we've got to embrace that his will is good and that his will has to come first. And sometimes it will clash with our will and our agenda and we won't understand it. We won't be able to reconcile intellectually the, the way that those things clash. But God came along. Now, this is where John really, this is where the rubber hit the road. And this is where maybe you'll feel the, 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 the most pinched today in what I say. John, in his from his perspective, was an aggrieved victim. And to a certain degree, he was. And we all are. We all are victims at some point in our life. But we are all something else that John lost sight of too. When, when we look at how injustice works in the world, we are a part of the problem. We're not just victims. We're part of the problem. We are oppressors too. We are victimizers too. And you may look at yourself and go, how does that work? Well, let's just put ourselves in John's place. Now, now give you a contemporary illustration. John was literally considered to be the most righteous man who'd ever lived in Israel. Jesus said that about him. And then Jesus was a man who knew people's character. He didn't just toss compliments around carelessly. He looked at John and said, this is the greatest prophet, the greatest person who's ever lived in Israel's history. This is a, a man of real character. John was a man of integrity and uh, moral fiber. Like, I don't know. I don't, there's not a lot of people like that around. And when he came along, he was a man who spoke and challenged the, 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 the moral behavior of everyone around him. And he spoke from such a place of integrity and honesty and God's word was working through him that thousands of people reformed their behavior because he preached. And yet when Jesus came along to be baptized, not because he had sin to confess, but because it was part of the pattern of his life, he came into the water and the river with John, and John looked at him, and John saw the, the righteousness of God in a way that his own righteousness just was utterly you know, wrong. As good as his righteousness was, he saw the righteousness of God in Christ and he said to Jesus, I need you to baptize me. In other words, I'm the sinner here. Let's reverse roles. And Jesus said, no, I'm, you know, we need to do it this way because I'm identifying with human sin here in effect. And at that moment, John got, I don't know if he never had it before, but I think at that moment, John had a moment of, that moment of moral clarity that I hope every one of us have in our life at some point. Where all of a sudden, instead of looking at himself with just respect to other people and feeling fairly confident about his own moral standing before God, 
He saw himself in God's eyes in a way that was shattering. All these people are gathered around to be baptized by John because they think he's this special dude, and he is. But when this other person comes along, all of a sudden, everything changes. And there's this quiet that comes over everybody when they see John knelt and this brokenness over his own sin. You wonder, what could he have done? You know, it's not always what we do. It's not that we always do bad things. It's the things that we don't do that we're supposed to do that are just as wrong as the bad things. There's a lot of people who walk around who aren't doing hourly criminal things, but they're completely missing God's will for their life because they're not doing the things that he wants them to do. Do you understand? And, And sins of omission and sins of commission are both under the issue of sin and disobeying God. And John saw himself in the light of God's just straightforward holiness that was in Jesus. And then later on, John said something that God showed him when Jesus came by again, and he pointed at Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now again, he was using Jewish shorthand. It meant somehow this man is going to suffer and die in a way that's like our Passover sacrifice that covered all of our sins that we had committed that was... That was what brought us out of Egypt as a new creation. This man is going to do something like that for all of us. Because already John counted himself among the sinners now. John's not just the moralist who's standing on the pulpit preaching down at everybody. He is someone who says, he's going to take away my sin too. And the Lamb of God was sacrificed. They slit the Lamb's throat. And they would, they would cook it and eat it as a, as a meal, as a, a memorial meal. And, they, and before they do that, they would put their hands on the lamb and they would confess their sins. And their guilt would be transferred to the lamb. Then the lamb would die. And then they'd take the lamb and put it on the, the, the blood of the lamb. And they'd put it on the doorposts of their house. And the judgment of God would pass over that house because they put their trust in the sacrifice And so John was saying, that's the lamb we've all been waiting for. But John lost sight of that at this moment. And what happens is, when we get in pain, we begin to struggle with anger. When C.S. Lewis was married for a short time, his wife got cancer and and died, I think, within a year of when they were married. And, and during that time, here's a man of great faith and great intellect. And he, he, he said he became despairing of his faith and he became angry at God. And at a certain point, he came out of that. And here's one of the things he said about his, all the, the, he said, all that stuff I wrote about the cosmic sadist was not so much the expression of thought as of hatred. I was getting from it, from the, what I was doing of calling God a cosmic Sadist, the only pleasure a man in anguish can get, the pleasure of hitting back. And see, how much of our doubt about God is really our anger about pain that we've suffered and injustices or or the pain that people we love is suffering and it affects us. And we turn that and vent that towards God. And we don't realize how much God's trying to, to show us, and it's a hard lesson to get in this moment. That's why John says this 
I mean, Jesus says this to John's disciples to go to John. John, don't stumble. You've come so far. You see what a lot of people don't see. You know I'm going to suffer and die in your place. In your place, John. And if you think you're being wrong now, God's way of addressing that wrong is not force in the way you think. It's going to be love. And I'm going to pour my life out. And my goodness, the goodness of God that's revealed through my life is what's going to break people's hearts and what's going to change injustice and bring It's going to speak truth to power in a way that that is the only thing that can change power. And Jesus' life started doing that. And it's kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. Now, I don't know if if, uh, President Mandela, who just passed away recently, if he was a Christian man. But I'll tell you one thing. He heard about forgiveness. And he borrowed, if he wasn't a believer, he borrowed from the Christian tradition. And he practiced forgiveness because he saw its power. But if you don't believe in God, and I'm not arguing about President Mandel's faith, I'm just saying, if you don't believe in God, you can't believe in forgiveness. But if you believe in God, you have to believe in forgiveness. You have to believe there's a purpose and, and that there's sin and that it, it wrecks everything and that forgiveness is the only power that can, that can deliver us from its power. And so Jesus said to, to John here through his disciples, don't stumble over me. Don't, don't pick up the, the way that this bogus world system solves problems and embrace it. Hang on to the message you've heard all through your life, how you were raised and what you've heard me teach, and hang on to me. Because Jesus made himself the point at issue. Do you understand? He wasn't arguing philosophically. He was saying, John, if you're ever going to resolve your doubts, you've got to resolve them at my feet with me. I am the one that resolves your doubts. If you ever wonder if God's really all-powerful and all-good, you look at Jesus. And again, that doesn't necessarily resolve it intellectually, but what you see is that God is willing to come into our world as a human being and enter into the world in the same way all of us enter into it, just like we saw a little Korah up here. A moment ago. But Korah isn't God incarnate. But at one point in history, God incarnate, the maker of everything, became part of everything. And he entered into this world. And he entered in with vulnerability that's hard for us to imagine now as human beings. Because we, as adults, we spend our time just building around ourselves all the protection we can against the uncertainties of life. And yet God was willing to come into the world and make himself vulnerable to what he made, which was so messed up, to to bring salvation and life into the world. And whoever puts their faith in that crazy plan, Jesus wasn't going to lead an army to overcome Rome. He was going to, not, not through military means, he was going to lead an army of servants, people who would love and forgive and give and sacrifice, and that was going to change the injustice in the world. And he said, this is what you shouldn't stumble over, John. Don't stumble over this. Now, maybe some of you are here, and you're looking at situations you're in, and you don't realize what's at stake. And you're in the throes of wrestling with doubt. 
and wondering. As, 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 as beautifully as Corey sang it earlier, if I make my bed in hell, if my life is hell, God is there with me. If I feel abandoned, it's a lie. I'm not. The incarnation tells us God comes into the worst of this world and when we hook our wagons to him, when we become a friend of Jesus by faith, he never lets us go. He's faithful in a way that we're not and that no one we know is. And he says, if you hang on to me, this good thing that God wants to do in the world will come into your life and will begin to come into your life through your life, into the world around you. But when you face the uncertainties of feeling small again and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like a failure, vulnerable, anything that makes you feel, go through something that makes you feel uh, cut off from God, Jesus is saying in this last little phrase here, listen, engage God with your heart and your head, and bring what you're wrestling with to him, and wrestle with it openly and freely, crying out to him, and he will speak to you, and he will show you if there's things in your heart that have become part of the problem. If you're pride, if you've suddenly become a judge of God, and, and we all do that at times, like C.S. Lewis said, when he railed at God, it was because of the pain in his heart. And Jesus becomes the picture of how God wants to engage you, the way he engaged John the Baptist here. It was firm, but it was incredibly gentle. And he doesn't push you away. That's why so many times when we have great doubts and we struggle in any way, we hide it because we feel ashamed, because we feel like we're going to be rejected or pushed away or in some ways, you know, uh, upbraided for, for our, our frailty. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And the only two character qualities Jesus named for himself, and he claimed to himself, he says, I am humble and gentle. And those were two character qualities in the Greek and Roman world, which were both despised. They were considered unmanly. And yet anybody that has any sense of a, a moral snap at all knows to be meek requires such character and self-control to not retaliate and return evil for evil, to submit to God, to bend your will to the will of God, to be meek in that sense is a rare quality. And Jesus owned it. And he said, I'm gentle. And there's power when you meet that. There is power in that kind of embrace. And your doubts just begin to melt when you look at who, is, who, who you're speaking to and you look at Jesus and see what you've wrestled with and see what he's like. Your doubts just begin to melt. They may melt slowly. They may not melt like they're in a microwave. They may melt like it's room temperature. But they will melt. They will give way. And John the Baptist, we know John the Baptist died well. That he heard this message and he embraced it. 
And, and Jesus commended him, and history commends him. So I want to pray just for a moment here. I want to give you a, a second before the Lord. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to close. You know, a, a short message isn't, doesn't give you the time to wrestle with every intellectual issue uh, around a subject this big. But it does give us time to deal with the hard issue. And what I've found is that God's really willing to show up and speak to us if we're willing to honestly respond to whatever he says. That, that we put everything on the table. We go all in before God. Because there's a passage in the Bible that says, if we lack wisdom, we can ask God and he will give us above and beyond the wisdom we need. But if we ask, we have to ask in faith and not doubt. Because God won't give us anything if we doubt. And he isn't using doubt in the way that you're probably thinking. Because he says, if you're double-minded, you don't, don't expect to receive anything from God. Now, in one sense, doubt is to be double-minded because it's not to be sure about something. But the way that James, who wrote this, is qualifying, he's saying, don't, don't have a divided heart. He's not talking about your head. He's talking about your heart. And he says, if you want God's wisdom, he'll give it to you. But if you've already got your mind made up, don't ask him for it or he's not going to give it to you. And so you may be sitting here and going, I really want God's wisdom. Well, my question to you is, do you really want it? You may say, I really want to resolve doubts in my life. Do you? Do you? Are you really willing to go all in and say, God, whatever you show me, with your help, I'll respond. You may have doubts over some particular area of your life, some particular issue, Something that, you know, there's a, there's a moral quandary that you're in. If you're willing to, to place the decision before God and say, God, whatever you show me, I'll do it, then I believe he's going to show you. Because he's like that. I've never found him to be, to play games with me and anybody I've ever had any contact with who's, who's tried to wrestle through these things. So bow your heads with me for a second. I just want, I'm going to give you a minute or two, and if you have some doubts about maybe just whether God exists or not, I just want you to ask God if you can do it honestly. God, show me if you're real. Make yourself real to me in some way that I understand as you speaking to me.